Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The volume. Can you believe we've had seven months without an NFL game? It's crazy, right? Well, good thing that is over. The NFL is here. And DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, is giving you a can't-miss offer for week one. This week, new customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly when you bet just 5 bucks on an NFL game. DraftKings is hooking everyone up with game day greatness. All customers can take advantage of two new offers every single game day in September. Check the app to see what you get. Download now and use code HOOPS to sign up. New customers can take home $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just 5 bucks. That's code HOOPS, H-O-O-P-S, only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778 Hope and Y or text Hope and Y to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. See dkng.co slash football for eligibility, terms, and responsible gambling resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Thursday, everybody. Hope all of you guys are having a great week so far. We are live on AMP, so if you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feeds, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. We are continuing our top 25 players of the last 25 years today with number three, Kobe Bryant. And then I've got a mailbag question at the end of the show for you guys as well. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to The Volume's YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason, you missed one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish. Don't forget, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops Tonight. A couple more quick ones 
Don't forget to drop uh, uh, mailbag questions in the YouTube comments. We're going to need them for the rest of this week and then potentially into the future as well. Bear with me today. I'm dealing with a, a, a little bit of a whatever the hell it is I caught uh, at the end of last week, and my voice is a wreck, so bear with me through that. And then last but not least, the start of NBA basketball. We're about, what, like seven weeks away from that, but there's no shortage of events to attend now. All summer long, we've been talking about baseball and concerts and comedy shows, but now we have the return of NFL and college football. The best way to get tickets to any of these is on GameTime, the fastest-growing ticketing app in the United States. For amazing last-minute deals on tickets to see your favorite baseball team or your favorite football team or your favorite artist or comedian, download the GameTime app. Again, it's not just sports. There are several huge concerts and comedy shows still on tour, and GameTime has your tickets there. Download the GameTime app and redeem code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, download the GameTime app and enter code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S, for $20 off. No matter where you live, get out and have some fun this week. Download the GameTime app. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. All right, let's talk some basketball. So number three, Kobe Bryant. His accolades, five-time NBA champion, best player on two championship teams, second best player on three championship teams, 11-time first-team All-NBA, 15-time All-NBA overall. That actually is tied with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Tim Duncan for the second most All-NBA selections of all time. He actually has one more first-team All-NBA selection than both of those guys. So I guess you could say Kobe is the second-best All-NBA winner of all time. Um, He also is 12-time All-Defense, won the scoring championship in 2006 and 2007, and uh, if, if you look at just the window of this list, so our 25-year window from 1999 to 2023, he is the second leading scorer overall over that time behind LeBron James with 31,884 points in that span. So Kobe's claim to fame, there's two big ones I want to hit on. First of all, I think Kobe's the thing that he'll be remembered for, like the his unique kind of trait, is I think that he was the very best shot maker in the history of the NBA. So where I want to start with that is what is shot making? So to me, there are like two different types of offense in the NBA, right? There's offense in the flow, and then there's offense as a result of shot making, right? Offense in the flow are shots that your offense is designed to generate, like your actual sets are designed to generate, right? Or just uh, by virtue of playing basketball, you're hoping to get these types of shots. These are your wide open catch and shoot threes or wide open catch and shoot mid-range jump shots for your bigs. These are your uh, driving layups to the basket, either off of one uh, driving kick or potentially multiple driving kick situations. Drive and drop off to the big man in the post or uh, in the dunker spot so he can go up and dunk. Those are your like buckets that you get in the flow of your offense, right? Offense from shot making is more about what the defense is trying to force, right? So like the defense's goal is to take away all of those things and to force you to make tougher shots within the margins, right? These are your shots on the move, right? These are your shots over contests. And so shots on the move, I look at more like your guys flying off of screens, right? This is your Kyle Korver, Ray Allen type of situation. Even Kobe did a little bit of this, especially from the mid-range. He'd come off of a pin down and then rise up from the free throw line extended or something along those lines. 
you know, and uh, maybe if you're fast enough over the top of the screen and pick and roll, like as a ball handler, you can get a floater that, that's in the mid-range or you can get a pull-up 15-footer that's uncontested. If you have a good enough handle and you set your man up well enough and you get over the top of the screen and you get to a spot, that to me is like movement shooting. But then there's like shots over contests, right? These are like your isolation and post-move shots where the defender's in front of you. And he's doing his best to slide his feet and contest, and you're trying to rise up over the top of the defender and knock down that tougher shot. These are like everything that we've talked about in terms of footwork and and dribble combinations and energy transfer and all that stuff that we've talked about on the show that involves the ability to get a shot off over elite Defense. Now, this is an incredibly important part of the game of basketball that we talk a lot about on the show. Why do you guys think shot making is so valuable? Because in theory, in theory, right, if you run your offense, right, you're going to get some easier shots, right? But why is shot making so valuable? Because when you do get to the later rounds of the NBA playoffs, especially against the best defenses in the league, they're going to take away all that stuff. They scout you relentlessly, so they get in front of your sets. They scout your stars, and so they identify their tendencies, and they like to take away the things that they are best at, right? They have higher level defensive personnel, just strictly from the standpoint of talent. When you get to the later point, uh, later points of the NBA playoffs, it's more talented defensive players, better athletes, right? And so it's just really hard to get those easy, wide open catch and shoot threes, catch and shoot 15 footers, driving layups, and dunks out of the dunker spot. They're harder than ever to get when you get to the later phases of the NBA playoffs. That is where shot making comes to the surface. That is where having a guy that can fly off of a screen and elevate and knock down a shot off the catch is super valuable. That is where having a guy that can knock down a floater or a pull-up jump shot in pick and roll is valuable. That is where having a guy that can get to a matchup and get to a shot in isolation or in a post-up situation is immensely valuable. Especially when we get to Kobe's era. Because in Kobe's era, we weren't we didn't have the type of spacing that we have today. There were two bigs on the floor for just about every team. You had your traditional power forward, probably somebody in the 260, 270-pound 6'10 area that was clogging things up on the inside. The pace was slow. The game was stuck in the half court. I, I've shared these stats with you guys before, but the three-point shooting is monumentally different now than it was in that era. In 2010, the Orlando Magic led the NBA with 10.3 made three-point shots per game. 10.3. All 30 NBA teams this year made more than 10.3s per game. So it's an entirely different era that we're living in now. This shot-making stuff that I'm talking about is much more valuable, especially in that particular era. So that's kind of a little breakdown of what shot making is. Now, what made Kobe the best shot maker of all time? Now, there's a bunch of little details I want to get into, but it all starts fundamentally with Kobe's obsessive work ethic. This was the thing that he's probably most remembered for, right? Like if you get any NBA player who played during his era down into a podcast and talking with some hosts and the host asks him like, hey, tell me a Kobe Bryant story. What are you probably going to get? You're probably going to get something along the lines of like, oh yeah, Team USA in 2008, like I couldn't believe it. We were getting back from, you know, going out and like Kobe was literally on his way to the gym, you know, or it's like, it'll be some story about after a game, he was mad that he didn't shoot well. And so he went out on the court and made a thousand shots. Like, like there's just dozens and dozens of stories that we've all heard over the course of the last decade about Kobe's obsessive work ethic. 
The, the reason why that matters is like I've told you guys so many times on this show, when I see improvements from players, especially young players in ball handling and shooting and footwork, I always talk about how it's incremental improvement. Like if you're if you're a, a, a college player right now and you're a freshman or sophomore and you shot you know 34% on catch and shoot threes last year, if you want to bump that up from 34 to 35% next year, 36, 37% next year, you literally have to make thousands and thousands and thousands of shots to see that tiny, tiny improvement. It is a very incremental thing. And so when I look at Kobe Bryant, who I believe was the most skilled player of his era, the player that had the best footwork of any guard in the league, the guy who had the best touch of any guard in the league at different spots on the floor, he didn't get that by accident. He got that through obsessive work ethic. And so as a result of that, he built out this incredibly well-rounded uh, skill set, right? So I want to I use one specific example because we could talk like Kobe's shot making it was so incredibly diverse. His face-up off the dribble shot making, his coming off of screen shot making, his post-up shot making. But we're, I want to focus on the post for just an, uh, just a, a quick minute as an example. So let's look at a left block post-up. So Kobe Bryant catches the ball 10 to 12 feet away from the basket on the left block extended, and he's got his back to the basket. That's a classic kind of back-arched look that you saw from Kobe over the years, kind of same sort of thing that he stole from MJ, right? That's at least that flair. I actually think Kobe and MJ are very different. They are, have some similarities, but like MJ had a quicker release. He was more poppy, vertical. Like, like Kobe was legitimately a better shot maker, like tough, tough, over-the-top shot maker than MJ. Like I kind of find them to be different in a lot of different ways. MJ was a better athlete and was, was like more dynamic getting to the rim and stuff like that. So they're, they're very different in my opinion, even though Kobe uh, in many ways tried to replicate him, right? But let's imagine that left block post-up, okay? So Kobe's going to drop a, a, a left-handed dribble and back you down to try to generate a little bit of separation, right? But as he comes out of that, that uh, pound dribble, he's going to hold the ball in a left-handed high hesitation. From there, he can literally go either way. And this is the important detail. Kobe's go-to move is going to be that right shoulder fade, right? That shot that he comes back over that right shoulder to shoot the fade away towards the basket. He hit a million game winners like that in his career, right? But the key is it's not just the go-to move. It's an equal counter move from the same situation. You have to have the counter move because that's what keeps the defense honest. Kobe was just as good with the left shoulder fade out of that high hesitation as he was with the right shoulder fade. So he could sit in that left-handed high hesitation out of the post-up and he could pivot that way into a left shoulder fade or he could pivot this way into a right shoulder fade. And so because of that, the defender is guessing. I'll give you guys an example. LeBron James, my favorite player, second best player of all time, a better player than Kobe Bryant. But with LeBron, he has a very good right shoulder fade, shooting over his right shoulder out of the post. But he has a bad left shoulder fade. And what happens is, is defenders sit on his right shoulder fade. And so LeBron's right shoulder fade isn't as impactful as it should be or as it could be because defenders can sit on it. They can lean on that shoulder and they can attack the shooting pocket expecting that shot to come. So LeBron has to take these little, like really dramatic drifting fadeaways over his right shoulder, right? Kobe 
understood the fundamental basketball principle when it comes to scoring and shot making that every single move has to have an equal and opposite counter move. If you have that equal and opposite counter move, then you always can make a read base on the defender. That's what allowed Kobe to, when he would do that back down dribble, if the defender was overplaying his right shoulder, okay, fine, I'm going to the left shoulder, that's a shot I can make just as well as I do that right shoulder fade. And look, I'm just using the post-up as an example, but you see this from just about every spot on the floor. Like among guards, there wasn't anybody who had a better left-handed hook or left-handed floater in the league because he could get into that, he could dribble into the lane and spin back over that right shoulder on a dribble drive and go to a left-handed floater or a left-handed hook. How many guards could do that? In the NBA, and what a lot, what, what's important about that is a lot of times when you're spinning over that right shoulder, you need to use this right arm to shield off the defender to create extra space. And to, and again, like I, I look at it, and it's the work ethic that juts out to me because it's like, do you understand how hard you have to work to build from the ground up a left-handed hook as a right-handed dominant player, especially as a guard? Like, think about how crazy that is. Kobe probably only took maybe a dozen left-handed hooks per season. But Kobe wanted to make that shot. Not just so that he could have that in his pocket, but so that it could keep defenders honest for his go-to moves. That balance was something I think Kobe had mastered. And that's what I think made him the most skilled player in the late 2000s and the most gifted shot maker of all time. Now, a lot of people are going to talk about efficiency. I'm going to save that for later because I have a an important kind of context I want to provide as it, uh, as it pertains to Kobe's efficiency. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new natural hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design icon West Elm, the natural hybrid is the culmination of the two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams. The natural hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary, indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Visit lisa.com forward slash hoops to learn more. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash H-O-O-P-S. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started to see a little more of your scalp? Are you unhappy with your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many root causes at play, and Nutrafol addresses them through a multi-targeted, whole-body approach. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Physician-formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole-body health. 
Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription, or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker and healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code Hoops. That's H O O P S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N U T R A F O L.com, promo code Hoops, H O O P S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code Hoops. So, Kobe's second claim to fame. I think Kobe is arguably the most obsessively competitive basketball player to ever touch a basketball court. He wanted to win so badly that he was willing to do all of the things that his peers weren't willing to do. Kobe was a high-volume ISO and post-scoring guard. If you look at his peers around the league, guys like Vince Carter and Allen Iverson and Ray Allen and T-Mac and Gilbert Arenas and those guys, none of them gave a shit about playing defense. All those guys I just listed, none of them managed to to log even one all-defense selection. Kobe made 12. Kobe made 12 all-defense teams. He was obsessed with finding ways to impact winning even when his shot wasn't falling. You guys might remember Game 7 of the 2010 NBA Finals where Kobe goes 6 for 24 from the field. That stat gets thrown around all the time. Do you guys remember by any chance that Kobe had 15 rebounds in that game? Do you guys remember by any chance that Kobe got to the foul line 15 times in that game? Do you guys remember by any chance that Kobe was guarding Rajon Rondo, or rather not guarding him, and roaming around the floor and wrecking havoc on the Boston offense, which only managed 79 points in that game? Kobe was so obsessed with winning, his competitiveness drove him to the point where he was willing to do what his peers were not. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that led to as much winning as you saw in his career. There were downsides to his competitiveness, right? Like, it caused him to be tough on his teammates, kind of like Michael Jordan was. It caused him to play hero ball sometimes. There were some shots that Kobe took that he probably shouldn't have. But it also has him going down as the third best perimeter player in NBA history, in my opinion, behind MJ and Michael Jordan. And and, and coming down as the third best player overall over the course of the last 25 years. So like, like, I don't think those are, uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's directly tied to his overall competitiveness. All right. Kobe's crowning achievement. Now Kobe accomplished a ton in his career. I want to briefly kind of touch on that early stretch because they're one of the most common talking points you'll hear is like, Oh, like, you know, Kobe wasn't that good with the first three Pete, you know, like it, he, she was riding Shaq's coattails. And now here's the thing. Was Kobe the best player in the league on that first repeat? No. Was Kobe as good as Shaq? No. Was like, like was Kobe as good as he eventually became? No. But he was deeply impactful and made several huge plays on the way to the Lakers winning those three championships. I want I want to zoom in on the year uh, the 2000 playoff run to demonstrate this example. Now Kobe was 21 years old in this particular season. He only averaged 21 points per game in that playoff run, and that is frequently pointed to as like Kobe's coattail riding championship, right? I want to look at the 2000 Western Conference Finals at first against the Portland Trail Blazers. It's game three. The series is tied at one. The game is tied at 91 with less than a minute left. 
Scottie Pippen is in a post-up, and he tries to throw a pass to the weak side corner, and he turns it over. Kobe gets the ball. 21 years old, Western Conference Finals, series tied at one, not even the best player on his team, dribbles the ball up the floor and says, I got this. Goes on the right wing. Portland throws a double team at him. Rather than forcing a stupid shot, he identifies Ron Harper in the left corner, wide open, elevates over the top, throws a rope, two-handed pass to Ron Harper in the corner who knocks down the shot. It was basically the game winner. Game-winning play in the Western Conference Finals from Kobe Bryant over a double team as a 21-year-old in the year 2000. Game 7, they're down by 15 points early in the fourth quarter. Looks like this series is over. Kobe scores nine points in the quarter, including in the basically when the game was in the balance, 79-79 with less than two minutes left. Kobe drives hard to the rim off of a kickout from Shaq in the post, draws a foul, gets to the line, makes both free throws. Then Sheed gets fouled, uh, Rasheed Wallace gets fouled on the other, uh, other side of the court. He misses both free throws. But still, Lakers by two. This game is still hanging in the balance. Kobe goes down, isolates Scottie Pippen. Hits him with this like nasty in-and-out dribble and knocks down a pull-up jump shot. Now they're up by four. Scottie Pippen goes down and misses a three on the left wing. Kobe gets it back and just buckles Scottie Pippen with his right-to-left crossover. Literally, like he's out of the frame. And he goes downhill and, again, rather than forcing up something stupid, throws a perfect lob pass to Shaquille O'Neal, who dunks it. Now they're up six. Now the series is over and the Lakers are going to the NBA Finals. Does that sound like coattail riding to you? It doesn't. That's revisionist history. That's looking at box scores and acting like Kobe wasn't making championship-level plays. He was. We're not even done. Game four of the NBA Finals. Shaq fouls out in OT on a loose ball foul along the baseline. A bad foul. Now Kobe's in there by himself. He scores eight points in overtime to carry them to the win anyway. This ridiculous pound dribble between the legs, a step back jump shot over Reggie Miller. Another off the dribble pull up jump shot over Mark Jackson. Then up by one with I think there's like 10 seconds left-ish and only like four seconds on the shot clock. He gets an offensive rebound put back. Doesn't have the ball, stays invested in the play, gets good position under the basket. I think he got position on Reggie Miller, if I remember correctly. Just elevates over the top of him and grabs the ball and guides it into the basket. Puts him up three with a few seconds left. That literally changed the entire NBA Finals. The Lakers were up two games to one. Shaq fouls out. Kobe doesn't make those plays. It's 2-2. Series looks completely different. But no, 21-year-old Kobe Bryant took the damn game over. Now, I'm not going to go through every single one of Kobe's playoff moments because it would literally take forever. But that was the first title in his three-peat at 21 years old. That's not tagging along. That, that, that is, that is a, one of the game's all-time greatest players finding a way to help his team win on his way to his first of his five NBA championships. Now, the next two titles, much more in line with what we expect from Kobe Bryant, right? 28-7-5 in those two playoff runs on 55% true shooting. No one's saying shit about those two, right? Now, after that, there was an extended drought of playoff success, right? They didn't win in 3 That was the season where Shaq got surgery at the start of the season. Didn't win in 4 Basically, the story of those two years, Shaq got fat. That's that's basically the story. Like Shaq, I believe he was up to like 395 pounds at that point. I think he's personally admitted that. So he was big 
at that at that point. Um, but then Shaq leaves and things don't go well. Kobe doesn't win a single playoff series for three years. Then Shaq wins a title in 06 with the Heat. And kind of like we talked about with uh, Steph yesterday, now a narrative starts to form, right? Uh, Kobe's a ball hawk. He can't win without Shaq, right? We get the trade request on local Los Angeles radio, right? Like it, it gets ugly there for a minute. Then Pau Gasol comes in and they end up losing to Boston. They get kind of back into relevance, but they lose to Boston, right? So things were not great. But this is where Kobe's crowning achievement came in. And I'm going to start it with the 2008 Olympics on the Redeem team before he won his two titles with the Lakers. You got to remember when the shit hit the fan against Spain, there was a lot of young players on that team. Young Dwayne Wade, young LeBron James, right? Young Carmelo Anthony. There, like in that situation when everybody had sweaty palms and was wondering what the hell to do, Kobe stepped up and clearly asserted himself as the best basketball player alive and executed the Spain national team. That was like that first kind of step into that crowning achievement. And then he follows that up with back-to-back titles with the Lakers in 2009 and 2010. In those playoff runs, averages 30.6 rebounds and 6 assists on 55% true shooting and wins the first two finals MVPs of his career. It went from all of the question marks surrounding Shaq's departure and everything about Kobe and whether or not he was a winning player to you could not deny it. He was the best player in the world. Now, there was a debate at the time. Was it LeBron or Kobe? LeBron or Kobe, right? And that was the Orlando Magic ruined the LeBron-Kobe finals. And to be clear, I think the Lakers would have beat that Cavs team. One, that Cavs team had a lot of shortcomings, but LeBron wasn't ready. LeBron wasn't ready yet. I mean, the 2011 series tells you all you need to know about that. That debate is interesting to me because, like, it reminds me a lot of of Giannis LeBron circa 2020 where everyone's like, oh, my God, Giannis is the best player in the world. Look at this. He's kicking everybody's ass. And don't get me wrong. I think Giannis was the best regular season player, potentially, although I think LeBron deserved to win MVP that year. He had a very good season. But like Giannis was a very, very good regular season player that was at LeBron's level. But then you got into the playoffs and LeBron's just clearly way better than him. Because with his age and his experience and having been through all those playoff wars and having rounded out his skill set a little bit more, feeling the pain and suffering of loss. I talk to you guys about that a lot. The pain and suffering of loss is the carrot that drives a competitor to that next level. And in that playoff run, LeBron clearly demonstrated he was the better player. That's kind of the way I feel about Kobe in that era with LeBron. Like, LeBron wins back-to-back MVPs, 260-plus win seasons with the Cavs, probably the best regular season player in the league. But, like, Kobe was the guy that was most confident on the biggest stages and knew how to win high-leverage basketball games. That's what led him to lead Team USA in 2008, and that's what led him to get the job done in 2009 and in 2010. If I'm like breaking down your best player in the world eras, right? You got like MJ in the 90s, right? And then you got like Shaq from 1999 to 2002, Duncan from like 2003 to 2007, and then it's Kobe from 2008 to 2011 or so until LeBron took over in 2012. Once 2012 came, LeBron had experienced enough pain from loss that he addressed a lot of his big weaknesses that were exposed in the Dallas Mavericks series. And then suddenly from 2012 to 2020, LeBron took over as like that definitive best player in the world. But I thought Kobe had that title there in the late 2000s. I thought he was better than LeBron in that period. Now, what is the biggest what if of Kobe's career? 
What if Kobe had played in the modern era? I talked a little bit about this a few days ago or a week ago or so. But Kobe uh, is a victim, in my opinion, of the modern-day obsession with efficiency. We draw lines. uh, We compare apples to apples. Eras here, when really the eras could not be more different. Like I broke down earlier. But it even goes deeper than that. The scoring, like the shot selection, the guys are taking more threes. Guys are getting easier shots in the spacing of the game. There's more pace, which pushes up the volume of scoring to a certain degree, right? There are a lot of things that influence that. But here's the this is the best case for the fact that if Kobe played today, he'd be far more efficient than he was in the late 2000s. In the 2013 season, on a janky-ass Lakers team with Dwight Howard and Pau Gasol, Steve Nash in and out of the lineup, you guys remember, he averaged 27, 6, and 6. It was a 50, uh, he shot 50.4% in effective field goal percentage, which was the highest mark of his career, his entire career. So literally, he was peaking in terms of his efficiency in 2013, right before he got hurt, as the league was changing. He was like 34. So, like, obviously, like, he wasn't close to the athlete he was when he was younger. And so, again, like, that to me is the dead giveaway. Like, Kobe was, like many players from that era, like Carmelo Anthony, right? Like Allen Iverson. Like, even if you look at LeBron James's efficiency in the era, it's lower. Everybody that played in the late 2000s and in the mid-2000s and early 2000s, it was an ISO-heavy league with very poor spacing, very slow pace, and guys just had to take a lot of really tough shots. Now I want you guys to envision Kobe Bryant playing in the Devin Booker role with the Phoenix Suns over the last few years, okay? I want you to imagine a really good pick-and-roll threat with good hands like DeAndre Ayton, outstanding backside shooting with Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, and Chris Paul as like this guy that could you could throw the ball to and he could take possessions off so that you don't have to do it too much over the course of a game and fatigue, and then just spamming high pick-and-roll and Spain pick-and-roll. Like Devin Booker does. You don't think Kobe Bryant is going to have a 62% true shooting percentage in that situation? Of course he is. He was like the best pull-up jump shooter in the league when he was playing. He was literally the most skilled player in the league when he was playing. If you picked him up and you dropped him off on the 2022 Suns in the regular season, he's averaging 32, 33 points per game. He's shooting 62, 63% in true shooting percentage. He's lighting these guys up. He is. So don't compare apples to oranges. Don't compare a completely different game of basketball from 15 years ago to what these guys have today. It's not the same. And, and I think that that, I think when we talk, because I think Kobe's the third best perimeter player of all time behind LeBron and MJ. I've talked about this, right? Most, a lot of people have Kobe. My guy Carson has him further back. A lot of guys have him closer to 10. A lot of, some people have him like 12, 13. I'm like, are you kidding me? 12-time All-Defense, 11-time First-Team All-NBA, most skilled player in the league, five-time NBA champion, victim of some of the, uh, of, like, literally, I think people saw James Harden scoring totals and true shooting percentages and just decided Kobe was overrated. It's the dumbest thing. I, I really don't understand. But yeah, that's the biggest what-if of Kobe's career, in my opinion, is what if he had played in the modern era? All right, only, one, uh, only time for one mailbag question today. This is from Ali, at least if I'm uh, interpreting the YouTube handle correctly. I believe your name is Ali. Having started watching the NBA for the past two to three years, 
why don't most teams use zone defense in the playoffs like Miami did? And why did Miami use it sparingly like Spo didn't even use it all the time? Like I know the personnel and coaching have to be immaculate to pull it off. And I get reserving it for the surprise element, but even still, having seen how effectively the Heat deployed it against the Bucks and Celtics, I don't get why Miami or other teams are sure, uh, uh, who I am sure have better personnel than Miami can't seem to want to employ it. Very good question. I find this one very interesting because this is kind of like a tactical uh, thing with the game of basketball. So there's a very specific reason, in my opinion, why teams don't use zone more frequently in the NBA. Zone has baked in weaknesses. In a man-to-man scheme, when the personnel run it correctly, there are no holes, right? Like, let's just talk about a drop coverage scheme where you defend pick and roll two-on-two with typical weak side help where guys have a foot in the paint, but they're in a position where they can rotate out, okay? In that situation, if the guard chases over the top of the screen properly and stays attached, the offensive guard has no choice but to continue to go downhill. If he continues to go downhill, he's going to run into the center who's in drop coverage. And the roll man's rolling directly into it, right? Even if you uh, talk about like specific openings, like let's say it's a pick and pop play where the big man's in drop coverage and the guy stays attached over the top, but now the pass to the, to the big man popping to the top of the key is open. In theory, if the defender on the weak side rotates to the top, to the shooter, the big man can rotate out and you're matched up again, right? The man-to-man principles, when executed properly, don't have openings. When you see guys score or make shots against man defense, it's either they made a contested shot or someone didn't do their job. There's a breakdown. Zone defense is entirely different. There are literally gaps in it. Like it is because of the nature of the zone, when teams run overload sets or they run high-low or they run ball screens at the top, like there are automatic baked-in openings in zone defense. And so as a result for that, of that, when you run zone defense in large doses against professional basketball players, they will solve it, they will consistently get great shots, and they will beat you. That's why zone defense in the NBA is best used in very small bursts. Because it's a rhythm disruptor. Because in a small sample size, an NBA offense is going to be like, oh shit, they're running zone. The first time they see it, they might not identify it's a zone until there's 10 seconds on the shot clock and then they don't have time to run anything and someone jacks up a bad shot. Then they go down again and they have to remember what their zone offense was, which in the NBA regular season, they don't practice. So like they're like, in their head, they're like, okay, we need, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, AD, go to the high post, uh, or no, no, go to the baseline. We'll have LeBron play the high post, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then they start doing it, but they, it just, it's janky because they haven't practiced it. But then if you run it 17 possessions in a row and there's a timeout mixed in there, they drop their set really quick. They run it a few times. They're professional basketball players. They're going to find those baked in holes and they're going to exploit them. It's not just holes in the defense. It's holes in rebounding by virtue of five players guarding spots on the floor versus guarding players. When offensive players move around, rebounding matchups get confused. And so usually someone's going to miss a box out and you'll give up an offensive rebound. The zone defenses are inherently flawed. And that's why they are best used as rhythm disruptors. And the only reason it made sense for Miami to use in any sort of, uh, of, of sample size is the fact that Denver was barbecuing their man-to-man defense so badly that they had no choice but to try something different, right? But yeah, so that's very, very good question from Ali. 
We have two more players this week, and then we're going to get into 20 season previews starting next week. Don't forget to drop mailbag questions in the YouTube comments. As always, I sincerely appreciate you guys, and I will see you tomorrow. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.